0: Welcome back to the building a fighter podcast. My name is Dr. Austin Shane, sports chiropractor in Scottsdale, Arizona with me as always bad ass strength coach in Denver, Colorado, Alex Friedman. How are you doing today, Alex? I'm doing great. I'm fantastic. I'm wonderful. I like it. Three positive statements. That's a lot. It's affirmations. Good. Good. I'm glad you're affirming how good you are, but today we're going to be talking about programming. We haven't done a science talk in a little bit. So me and Alex are going to be going back and forth on our exercise science programming, um, how we, how we actually dictate what our athletes do, why they do it, and then probably debate back and forth a little bit. Um, if, if I know us, (laughs) Mm. so Alex, I'll kick it to you. I I made some, some topics myself, but what, what's the first thing you think about when you're making a program for an athlete?
1: Well, I made a hierarchy a while back of like your decision-making tree, right? Like when you're presented with an athlete, with a team, with, um, someone to create a strength program for, or to, um, create a performance plan for. And like, I, time and time again, I always go back. My number one thing is timing. Like where are we at? What do we have to do? How much time do we have to do it in? Yeah. Right. So you know, if that's a fighter, it's like, all right, when's the fight? You know, where are we in camp? We out of camp. We got 12 weeks. We got three weeks. What, what is the deal here? What's going on? And that spurs all of my next questions, which, um, and uh, again, when we've talked about programming, I've kind of outlined that asking more questions is only better for your programs. Um, mm. Obviously, you can get to like a paralysis by analysis of spot, but the more layers of questions you can answer for your program, I think the better the program that it is. Yeah, no, for sure. So and that's, I always go to time.
0: Yeah, and and that's a huge point. I'd say my first thing I always go to is goals. It's okay. it's sitting down. It's goals slash assessment because that my assessment to me actually allows me to understand what I think the timing should be. Even though typically we're under the constraints of the athlete, but sometimes you have an ability to at least in with what I do. Sometimes you have an ability to, I guess. Get a little bit more leeway, say, Hey, you should probably take this practice off. We need to fill this in if this is a glaring issue and have a little bit more say in the schedule. Yeah. Um and I but, think
1: but I think um you can get a lot of the timing from your goals, like you true, know, why is an athlete signing for conditions? Like I want to win this fight on March
0: twelve. Oh, it's okay. So we're saying timing in two different things. I mean timing as in when I say timing, it's like how many times a week are we doing?
1: When I say timing, I mean like what's the general outline of our next few months. Got right? you. Okay. What's, so it's or like what's the season? What's the the outline or what, what are we training for? Like it, it's going to be a very different program. Somebody that comes in for, you know, hey, I got to fight in 12 months or right. in 12 weeks. What are we going to do versus Somebody that says, you know, I just signed a short notice contract for f- in four weeks. I'm fighting. Those are, those are, that's the type of timing I'm talking about. Got
0: you. Yeah. Well then that's an extremely, that's a part of your goals and your assessment. <laughs> there
1: you go. Yeah. And, uh, and by the way, yeah, I'm an exercise nerd, big, uh, big boy pants. you. Uh, how many times a week you train is called frequency.
0: I know. I know it is. <laughs> I was thinking, but timing isn't a professional term.
1: All right. Fine. Uh, what's our annual plan?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So that's that is kind of what I was looking at as well. So saying similar things, the other thing that I think is extremely important to get out of the way is not just your intake forms and your your goals from the athlete and from yourself as well, because those need to align when you're talking, right. but also getting a physical assessment out of the way. Like getting your assessment to me is One of the first things, if not the, in my mind, it's the first thing you do because you need to go like that, that should shape your goals for the athlete that should also shape the athlete's goals. Because if you're doing testing, it should in some way correlate to what they're feeling in a fight or what they're Mm -hmm. feeling with their sport. So getting the assessment done, both physical, mental, and previous exercise history, um, getting that done completely, I think should be step one.
1: Yeah. And that should be your first session with the athlete is a somewhat of an assessment, whether it's a performance-based test, like one or two of them in the first week, or whether that's range of motion um analysis, whether that's a what I've done before too, is I, I've had our like your like trial session or your first assessment session. And I just make sure that it's workout that hits every movement pattern that I'm concerned about yeah. or every movement pattern, you know, period that we kind of talk about. So, you know, we go through a a tri-set of like squat, row, dead bug. Like I can do a lot of assessing just by watching somebody body weight or goblet squat, you know, like, um, so, or you can go through the FMS, SFMA, whatever checkbook that you want, or the building fighter screen, the one that we created for. MMA athletes, like, um, that's gotta be a primary point in your, uh, programming goals, just so that, again, like I said, you have somewhere to go.
0: Yes. Yeah. And then next after, after I get done with the assessment, after I get the goals out of the way that leads me into, at least for me, I get into planning, or I guess we, we were talking about like, you were talking timing. That's what I mean, yeah. planning. Um, right. is how many times a week, scheduling, how far out are we? And and do your goals match the time frame that we have, yep. right? So that's that right there is that's a main part of what I do. And that's where we need to start talking with our other coaches. Actually, having conversations and expanding and trying to talk with the skill coaches or talk with the healthcare providers, the recovery providers, um, and figure out how the schedule matches and where do you fit in? Because we've talked about it a bunch. When you're in camp, you are typically the lowest priority, as bad as it sounds, as far as skill work. And then normally, beneath skill work, recovery is probably above training, even though we know it probably shouldn't be that way. It should be flipped but most athletes treat their recovery sessions as more important because they want to recover for their skill work.
1: You know, and I think, I think that's just in the swing of things that we're in now where athletes tend to overtrain. So, I mean, recovery can take a little higher priority in my book. Yeah. That's not a bad idea. Um, But but I do think think,
0: if you do a properly programmed lift, you can definitely do a recovery lift and it can just kill two birds with one stone. Amen. Yeah. That's in an (laughs) ideal world. If you're, if you're living on cloud nine. Um, I like cloud nine. It's a good place to be. Yeah, I, I could, li- I would live there if I could, that's for sure.
1: <laughs> but what I was saying was you said an interesting thing earlier when you mentioned assessments, you said, um, physical, mental, and skill-based assessments. I don't know if that's the exact quote, um, but you can re- rewind the podcast if you really want to factor, but the mental assessment and the skill assessment, I think are, are huge as well. And not a lot of people have those in place slash haven't done them in a while, whatever, but like that is a skill coach job, right? Mm-hmm. Like you may have not have a written down, you may not have your formula or whatever, but you're coaching an athlete every day and you're analyzing their skill set and how you can make them better as a strength coach, talk to their skill coach, you know, as part of your assessment, you know, what style of fighter are they fighting? What style of fighter are they, what What do they lack in practice? Do they, you know, shrink and clam up when shit gets hard? Do they, is that the only time that they shine? You know, talk to the skill coach and then you can layer that into your your strength conditioning program. And that's less of like what you're going to write, but more of like how you're going to execute it. Um, I think those things are important in this front end of programming world.
0: I also forgot one part of the assessment. So exactly what you said is what I said, right? It's going to be physical, mental, um, your skill assessment. But then also, even if you're a strength coach, you should still be watching your athletes film. You're not going to get a better measure of all of their different metrics blended into their sport than actually watching them play their sport or compete in their sport or fight. It doesn't matter what they're doing. If you're trying to get an accurate assessment of how they operate and actually be able to form your goals for the athlete, you should watch a conglomeration of three to five of their fights and try to figure out, pick up what you're seeing, pick up, Hey, is he gassing in the second round? Hey, is he, when he's taking a double leg, does he look like a dog shitting? Like those are things that you don't see through a skill coach's lens. You see through a strength and conditioning coach's lens. And that's valuable advice that not enough strength coaches speak up on. Yeah. And
1: that's hundred percent why I love going to practice. Why I love going to live events. Why I love seeing your athletes compete it puts things in perspective a hundred percent for you. It's like, you know, I think a lot of strength coaches get stuck in this tunnel vision of training, 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 training. This is our training approach. This is what we should be training. Here's how we should be training. And it's like, go watch competition, Mm -hmm. refresh yourself on what is important because like, yes, correcting your overhead mobility is, can be crucial to some people, Mm -hmm. but you know, but what about the like knockout power? Like, did you have any consideration into that? Like, maybe that's more important than the the overhead press mobility. So it's just uh, like me, like I said, it gives me perspective to go watch sports. And it's like, what can I actually do as a strength coach to, um, enhanced performance. And I think you get a better answer to that when you watch live competition.
0: hundred percent. And that starts getting into talking about strength coaches, speaking up a little bit more back into scheduling, right? Mm-hmm. This is where I think strength and conditioning coaches shine. Um, as far as workload management, this is while you're having the conversation with the strength coach about your, or with the skill coach about your athlete and about your athlete's schedule, you should sit down with them and write out numbers wise, zero to 10, how hard is every practice they take? It's something that'll take about 10 minutes to complete, to complete, if you are efficient and that'll be valuable information when knowing how to program out, Hey, today should be a big push day. I think, uh, Corey Beasley with fight camp or, uh, sorry, it's get physical. Now he, he uses the the color system. There's red, yellow, green, blue, right? Today's a red day. Today's a yellow day. Today's a green day. Today's a blue day. You're not going to have more. You shouldn't have more than two red sessions in a day, Right. Yeah. So when, when we're doing that, if you talk with the coach and plan that out, you're able to better schedule for your athletes and better schedule the program that you're creating.
1: Yeah. 100. hundred percent. I look at, um, one big thing that Bo Sandoval talked about when he was on podcasts or, um, was windows of recoverability, right? So are we actually recovering from the work that we're doing? We probably shouldn't put all of our grappling days on one day, or we shouldn't put a high intensity um, power session or lift right after grappling practice like you're, you're not going to be able to accomplish those um, those intensity numbers that you need to actually get the training effect so you can sparse out a lot of problems ahead of time if you just have this grid this um, you know color block system i do it on an excel sheet that we can look at where are you spending your your intense days and in practices where are you um, you know, taking it easy and getting your recovery, because that's important too. So shifting dates, times, um, and what kind of lift you're doing can have a huge impact on whether it's a successful camp or whether you, you put your athlete into the ground. So I think that's a big thing in planning. And for whatever reason, strength coaches have gotten this, this responsibility of workload management, right? <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't know. Under, I don't quite, I, I get it. I understand because we calculate a tonnage and we're like, stress managers type of, of role, but the workload management to me is, is way less of a strength and conditioning coaches, um, like output. So I don't know how we got that responsibility and I'm not complaining that we did. It's great that we did, but somebody's got to have it, you
0: know? Exactly. I I think it's to me, I think it started becoming that because we've so much knowledge of what overtraining is right? You, you have the academic knowledge of what's over-training, what's under-training, what's minimal effective dose. And you have the knowledge based around that. So it kind of fell on strength and conditioning coaches. You're like, well, now you don't just do that. You have to worry about workload management. Yay. Yeah.
1: Strength and conditioning coaches <laughs> were a little more approachable about it than physical therapists or, or physicians. It was, yeah. strength, it's it's an odd dynamic, like head coaches and coaches like to work the piss out of the athletes. Sure. Strength conditioning, obviously, you know, that's, one of the hallmarks of our field is working hard, putting in the extra mile, you know, whereas you almost traditionally, and again, not every practitioner, and I'm sure it's getting better, but like at every PT or, or positioning, like shut it down, you know, or you need to recover.
0: So, oh, yeah. And and it's under dosing out the ass. It's, yeah. they, they don't, not so a lot a of, yeah, not a lot of PTs, chiros, ATs understand minimal effective dose. They understand what it, what a pre-made program looks like and they give it to people.
1: So that's what we're avoiding through this whole process of planning, assessing, um, scheduling. And then what's your next um, barrier? What's your next hurdle that you jump over when you're
0: programming? Well, then I get into like straight up programming. So it's, to me, it comes down to when, once it gets into the programming, I have in my mind, it's something that I stand by is you need to have a macro plan, a meso viewpoint, and then be able to make micro adjustments. That's, that's, tactics that I stand by. So I the first thing I look at is my plan. And I actually I mean I've I've been criticized and I I criticize myself it's a self-criticism that I'm the plan is a really really large important of or is very of large importance to me, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not willing to sacrifice long-term gains for short-term gains and that kind of gets in the way of some of the things that I program um, for athletes during fight camp. Um, not a bunch, but enough to where I'm trying to actively change a little bit, but I think having a macro plan needs to be most people's top priority. What's an example
1: of that macro plan getting in the way of the micro game? Um,
0: uh, like for me, I'm, I'm not willing to sacrifice creating, proper movement strategy or efficient movement strategies and uh, functional capacity for the short-term gains of absolute capacity of, of, okay. of overloading super like to getting to the point of almost excessive super compensation. Yeah. Okay. Because anybody, anybody knows you can work somebody like the, you could work the piss out of somebody for six weeks. Yeah. They're going to be dog shit tired. They might be, they might not get an injury that camp and they're going to have super compensation. They're going to be extremely compensated. They're probably not in a six week camp going to get to the point where they're going to be completely overtrained. You could work really, really hard and you're not going to even touch the point. I mean, you, you could, but you're not going to touch actual, actual overtrain. Right. right. So you're going to get those quick short-term gains. But if you do that three camps in a row, guess what? That ends up being legitimate overtraining. And guess what that means? You're going to get hurt. You're going to probably have a disc herniation, your active disc herniation. You're probably going to not probably, you might get fucking wrapped out. <laughs> like that's happened to a couple people that I, that I know of. So to me, I look at my athlete. And as soon as I start working with somebody, the first thing I think of is a three-year plan. Where do I need them to be in three years? What do I think I can get them to in three years based off of the assessment that I have? And how can I make them a little bit closer to that goal three years down the road, every single time they come into my office or into the gym, right? That that's my number one goal because I really don't, it sounds bad, but I, I don't care about somebody's third amateur fight. I don't, yeah. I, what I do care about is when they're fighting on Dana White's contender series in three years, when they're five and O oh as a pro, or six and zero as a pro, are they going to be the best version of themselves? That's to me what I think matters.
1: Yeah, no, I get that. I get that. I think it's time and place uh, for sure, as far as like sacrificing the short term for the long term. Because I think there are times when you need to work on absolute capacity for sure. But I think you can also plan for that by limiting your exercise selection or finding movement patterns that are relatively easy. You Mm -hmm. can just grind it. You know, that's why you like grind on the airdyne. That's why, um, you know, skier and other things are are so common because yeah, I view it as a capacity
0: sandwich, right? That's, that's how I, that's how I program capacity is I focus first on functional capacity. Can, can this athlete do the movement and, and create gain the skill of whatever movement I want them to do and try to boost up their proper form as high as I can. Once I get to their functional capacity, when I think their functional capacity comes close to their absolute capacity, then fuck it. Let's throw some weight on that bitch. Like, you know what you're supposed to do. You know how you should be moving. No matter what, if I touch your absolute capacity, your form's not going to be perfect. Yeah. So let's have a little fun. And we do that for two, three, four mesocycles. And then once we've boosted their absolute capacity, then we start focusing on functional capacity again. And we kind of go back and forth through that, through that sequence.
1: Yeah. 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 So it's, it's giving them a foundation. Of yeah. And I get that for sure. Okay. So I got off track there. Sorry. But so when you think of the actual plan, you start thinking of this kind of grand long-term approach, right? Yep. Um, what's your first decision when you decide to actually put pen to paper and write the program?
0: Um, It's going to be after my assessment, seeing what the uh, metabolic or neuromuscular effects and the desired variables that we need to address. That's, that's the first thing. That's the first consideration. When I start creating a program, that's where I, now that I know the schedule, which was part two, once I have part three of, Hey, I have three days to accomplish this set of goals. I need, to have this neuromuscular or this metabolic effect throughout the camp or throughout the off season, whatever it may be. This is where I'm going to throw this. This is where this is going to mesh together. This is where I'm going to throw this variable to try to boost those goals. So that's my first variable. So you I think.
1: define your buckets. Yeah, exactly. And and you put them in two categories, you know, strength, neuromuscular, yep. and conditioning. Metabolic, yep. Exactly. Right? Yeah, so That's easy. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And that that's what I would call priorities, right? That's how I would. Mm-hmm define that after my assessment, after uh, I'm looking at that, I look at my priorities. Um, and then where I go to is a, what style of program is, is this athlete ready for, or is appropriate for the time frame? You know, like once mm-hmm. I have my priorities and I, I might even make this decision before I prioritize like my buckets, but you know, is it, is this put athlete in a place for, you know, a conjugate program? Is this athlete needs some linear gains um, depending on the timing? So where can we go in a like a um in a framework of the program so Mm -hmm. is it going to be two different days with two completely different emphases conjugate or is it going to be you know three days a week with the same emphasis all three and trying to make gains week after week after week linear um that's kind of my thought process as far as where to go after we're done with the initial planning
0: period? Not- I-, I like that a lot. That's actually that was my step three, um, which is to me when I think about that, it's like training age, right? Yeah. W- what's the athlete's training age? Mm-hmm. Um, my step two was after I figure out what the personal demands or the personal neuromuscular buckets I need to fill. I like your mm-hmm. analogy better than neuromuscular and metabolic assessed. Yeah, it's gonna catch on a little better. Yeah. <laughs> um and once i find out the buckets that that athlete needs to fill then i try to figure out the buckets for the sport and start spicing in what the what the sport specific demands are so once i know what the athlete has say we look at the pi book and we know that a 125 pounder is at we need them obviously cardio is a large thing for a male 125 pounder most fights go 13 minutes and 40 seconds or something like that so we know that having a strong cardiovascular system and probably muscular endurance should take priority. So af- after we filter in what the athlete needs, if that's not also included, so if that athlete doesn't necessarily need muscular endurance, but their weight class and their or their sport, whatever it may be, we know that that's an extremely beneficial variable to add into the program or to have that athlete have, that's where I start filtering in that factor into my program. So yeah, first is what the athlete wants, then what the sport wants. And then I pick the exercises from there. Yeah. I think that's, that's huge. Like, and you can have those like overlapping
1: variables, you know, like mm-hmm. even though this 125 pounder has a gas tank for days, you know, maybe comparatively in the gym, he's like in the best shape. Is it good enough for the 125 pound division or the fighter that he's fighting against? Right. right. So that's where you get into sport demand. It's like, so he's good in a personal category for conditioning, but it's not good in the sport demand for uh conditioning. So that's something you're going to prioritize or he's bad at conditioning. He's 25 pounder and his weight class demands a lot of conditioning. So no brainer, you put it in there. Right. And that's, that's where, again, back way when Tim Murray was on our podcast, he, he broke, you know, your sporting demands into three branches, right? What does the athlete need? What does the sport demand? And is their athlete have a general sense of health and wellness? Yeah. Like, do they have their lifestyle in check? So those three guess priorities can help you define your exercise selection, define your, um, primary adaptations or training effects that you're going after your buckets. Um, so yeah, and then you kind of plug and play depending on what days and how you prioritized it. If you've gone conjugate or linear. Um, and I know Austin, you, you, uh, utilize a concurrent approach, correct?
0: Yeah. Um, I've switched a little bit. Um, I've, I've started to do out of camp. I do a bunch of concurrent stuff and that's primarily where I do it. And then in camp, I've been doing a little bit more conjugate splits um, just to special, to specialize. Um, But for some people I do still do concurrent. um, Yeah. I I think it's
1: a hundred percent a situational basis. I don't think there's any absolutes, uh, but let me, let me walk this out and make sure we got it right. So when you're out of camp, you tend a little more towards a concurrent training model where mm-hmm. we're working on strength, power conditioning. Um,
0: right. I just think, concurrent. yeah, I think, I think concurrent training lends itself better to GPP, to our general physical preparation. Yeah. Um, Cause we could focus on a lot of variables at a, um, at a, I guess a shallower level. Yeah. And then once we get into camp and we know, Hey, there's a name on the dotted line. This is the, I, I have a good relationship with our coaching staff. So I know the game plan. I know what we're planning on doing. I've gone over film. I know what that athlete does. And then from there, if I need to focus on three variables, it's a lot easier to just do a conjugate split than try to filter in 10 different things in a camp.
1: Yeah. And, and one big realization I had, you know, probably one or two years in my strength and conditioning journey is like, you always think of GPP, right? You think of conditioning, you think of a lot of exercise, you think hypertrophy, whatever, like mm-hmm. GPP for a lot of people is synonymous with capacity, yep. right? That's what we're trying to build. And that's what we're laying that foundation of. The realization I had is general physical preparedness has to do with every quality that you're asked to uh, to um, perform, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So what I had been doing was I was uh, programming my GPP phase like it was an aerobic block model, right? Yeah. So I was taking yeah. this, this whole month and it's like, okay, we'll call it GPP, but we're only going to do capacity and conditioning, right? Like in a truer sense for me, at least general physical preparation is exposing your athlete to any type of performance variable, whether that's even a lactic work, um, but allowing them to have a foundation and a uh, flooring to stand on yeah. for when we do get into like our power cycle or we get into whatever else kind of block that you get into
0: for sure. I think when I think GPP, I think how robust is the athlete in front of me? Yeah,
1: that's a really good one.
0: And that's, that's at the end of the day, it's every single skill contributes to robustness just because it's supposed like exactly what you said is most coaches for a GPP phase. They just think uh, just, just capacity and conditioning. Mm -hmm. And in reality, it's you focus on the weak points that should be GPP because I want them to be as robust. I want them to have the, the highest starting point as possible. Yeah. They should, they should start at the 20 meter line. You know, and, and I don't think it's wrong
1: though with GPP. Like that's a good time to like put them in a hole, you know, like, yeah. like you have, you of course need to be sensible with your loading schemes and, and volume. But if we're doing GPP, there's you, you should be at your furthest point away from uh, competition. Right. Mm-hmm. So like training can be a huge stressor in the athletes, you know, athletic life. So that's one of the big things in GPP that I I, I kind of look forward to statistically is like, all right, this is my time to shine. Like we can fucking work right now versus yeah. like you said, when we're in camp, when we're kind of in the backseat.
0: Right. And that's also a good time where you can add in skill work as well. Right. That's not not sports skill, but skill work of new movement patterns. Yeah. That's when I add in, it's, it's all through GPP. I'm not going to add in single leg hopping in camp. Yeah. Right. I'm going to so. add in single leg hopping probably three weeks after that athlete's fight, because I know they're not fighting for another 12. And
1: <laughs> even better. Yeah. That's going to set them up for a progression where like maybe when we get in camp, you feel comfortable putting a single leg plyometric in there. You feel comfortable putting a single leg box jump or, or something of that nature into the athletes program, because you're laying a foundation, like you said, for everything you're going to train leading up to the competition. You're not just doing the capacity thing. Um, but I think that's big, that's big because, you know, sometimes I get to a point where it's like, all right, we're, we're starting to peak. I really like this like lateral bound for my single leg power or whatever. Mm-hmm. I haven't done any single leg jumping. I can't just throw <laughs> a lateral bound at them. You know, and, and like, again, we talk about GPP being robust. We want to make a robust athlete. And in my head, like I'm thinking a robust athlete could handle that. But when we're peaking and when we're like close to the competition, like risk aversion, man, like mm-hmm. completely. And you know, I'm not trying to get my athlete sprained ankle on a lateral bound yeah. two weeks from the fight, you know, mm-hmm. at all. So if we haven't laid a foundation, they don't have single leg stability or power. Plus, if they don't have the single leg. A- um, like capacity or skill, they're not going to get any power benefit from it.
0: Right. Yeah. It's just, I actually just had this talk with my athletes today. He was asking me about scheduling and stuff like that. And, and he was thinking about switching days in which he's, he just said, he's like, dude, I feel run down after my Monday and Tuesday. Um, I he's, I've been taking off Thursday mornings. I think I'm going to switch it. I, I really think I need to switch from Thursday morning, to, uh, off day to Wednesday morning, off day. Cause Wednesday morning, I'm just not getting anything out of the session. And, yeah. and I told him, I'm like, dude, I think that's a perfect idea. I think you got to listen to your body. And on top of that, if you're expending energy, you should have something you're getting out of it when you're yeah. in camp. Amen. If you're going to, if you're going to put your time into something, don't just practice to practice practice to get better.
1: Amen. Yeah. I, I think that's something you have to be acutely aware of, especially when you're job is training, right? You know, like I'm not going to try and grind out a 50% effort when, you know, it'd be worth twice my time and effort if I put it at a
0: different place. And like, if the only thing holding you back there is logistics, figure it out. Well, it 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 goes down to the first first thing I was talking about programming. It's be able to make micro adjustments. You you have to be able to make micro adjustments. If you, if you can't have the balls to say, Hey, I think I'm going to switch the schedule let's get everybody on board and you just go through with it and you just like, Oh, it's fine. I feel like shit, but I'm just going to get it done. That's in an eight week camp. That's eight practices. You just wasted. That's eight hours of your, of your practice time in camp that you just wasted that you didn't get better because you didn't want to speak up for sure. So we
1: got this athlete through our, our planning, through our scheduling, through our assessments, through every, everything else. It's time to again, put pen to paper. Um, and I know it's all, um conditional and it's all dependent on the situation, blah, blah, blah. What does a general first block or uh, let's even go even before that? What's a general warm-up for you? It looks like you've talked about this extensively. So keep it short, please.
0: I will. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, so it's it's typically going to be anywhere between four, four to five different exercises um, for around 10 minutes. And what you're going to be doing is it's going to be targeted. The main part is going to be targeted mobility. It's going to be targeted priming. And then it's also going to be heart rate elevation. Those are, those are my three main things that I focus on. And I can typically get it done in four to five exercises and having them, whether it be for just two sets. And that typically ends up being around 10 minutes or just putting them on a running timer and said, Hey, here's 10 minutes. I need you to hit your favorite hip, your favorite shoulder, your favorite spine, and a total body mobility movement, go for it and do it as many as you can in 10 minutes. What are your,
1: you targeting off of? Is it based
0: on the athlete's efficiency? <laughs> is it based on the
1: upcoming workout? Is it based on um, what they're seeing in the fight or is it dependent in itself?
0: Yep. It's typically going to be a mix of what's coming up in this upcoming workout as well as the fighters targeted um, issues that we saw in the assessment, right. Or issues in quotes. Um, so say we have a fighter that lacks hit mobility. Um, but we also are doing deadlifts that day. I'll probably throw in say that day Would there'd be five exercises and one of them would be like a lateral band walk or a banded glute bridge or something like that. The other one would be a hip hover, a hip car, a modified. Actually, I'd probably use modified oblique sit because it accomplishes both goals. Um, But I typically, if if the athlete has a mobility deficit, but we're also doing a hip-based pattern or a shoulder-based pattern for shoulder mobility stability, then I'm going to hit both of those things.
1: Yeah. And I love the warm-up to prime for the session itself. Like there's there's for whatever reason it, it like rings to me like a symphony when I hit the movement pattern in the warm-up, we hit it in our primary strength or power, and then I can echo. So this is what we did in the warm up, and here's how it translates to your performance, you know, exactly. And then even better yet down the line, we can translate it into a more, um, sports specific movement, which are not the devil. So don't come at me, um, <laughs> into a more sports specific <laughs> movement. And I say, this is how we get from our deadlift to a rear lift, you know, like, like it, it should have that almost clear line of trajectory where a warmup's a good place. We can learn the movement pattern. We can practice rehearse it under a very controlled setting, even more, controlled and strength and power again, less control, less control, less controlled into now we're actually hip hinging in a fight, not lifting with our low back yeah. or we're actually hip hinging at practice and not fucking ourselves up. So right. that's kind of where my mind goes. When I think of like patterning a warm up and layering it into the session.
0: Yeah. What are you thinking about when you're hitting your first block? Um, first block for me, it, it dep-
1: I, I must be the worst and tell you not to say it depends, but then say it depends. <laughs> so we'll go on a normal uh, concurrent training day. So I like power uh, out the gate. It's the most neurologically demanding. So it should be one of our first uh, mm-hmm. sets within the day. Um, and depending how well the warm up worked, I might need to add some heart rate elevation or add some type of conditioning to the warmup to get that going. Because again, we need to be ready for the most neurologically demanding thing of the workout. So yep. I hit a power block, you know, and generally that's going to look like, Um, jumps, plyometrics, you know, uh, landmine, uh, power movements, medicine balls. I love medicine balls for some power. Um, you can even sled sprint, anything that the speed of the repetition is fast, Mm -hmm. you know, and you can, you can nerd out and break it down all you want from speed to explosive power, to speed, strength, to strength, speed to whatever, um, category or velocity you want to layer it in, but it, it depends on that bucket. My bucket for this athlete is say, let's say um explosive sh- speed. So we're gonna do plyometrics in the warm up. We might do box jumps, we might do draw jumps, we might <laughs> do single leg jumps, we might do uh, trap bar jumps, we might um use a medicine ball because that's a form of an upper body plyometric. So um a power block. A power block, typically two exercises that have to relate to power, maybe one exercise for mobility. Um, and I layer that mobility or stability exercise in to kind of be a, a filler within the rest break um, yeah. and not a filler as in we shouldn't pay attention to it or do it well, a filler as in it's awkward and no athlete likes to stand around for two minutes after they've done something that's a fairly short duration.
0: That's where I throw actually, that's where I throw in shadow boxing. That's where I, it's just active recovery. Sure. Um, no, I'm, I'm the same way. I do my highest neural load. Basically, how I program everything out is just neural load, neural load, neural load. What yeah. what is the main neurologic adaptation from this? Oh, okay. Well, typically, power is going to be that. So, a, a common one, like a good example, would be. Uh, I think I did this yesterday for one of my athletes. It was a banded speed bench right into plyometric push-ups, right into two minutes of shadow boxing. Yeah, and that that was his. For me, because I consider my warm up my A block. That's I would just program weird. Sure, yeah. Um that that would be my B block, would be something like that. Yeah. And yeah, I like that a lot. Um, but you said you think about neurological load,
1: neurological load. And and one of the things that I got into um was using a tier based system, right? Mm-hmm. So that tier based system was developed in Boise State. Um and I'm blanking on the name of the guy. Ken, maybe Ken on Anyway. Um, Ken Stone. Not Ken Stone. <laughs> But, um, a tier system essentially is you're picking from a menu of exercises and your first tier, your B block, if Austin's writing the program, your A block, if I'm writing the program, um, (laughs) is power, right. And you pick from your menu of power workouts. Your second tier is probably a strength compound strength movement or a more emphasized strength component. You can do a second tier where that's strength as well. But then your third tier is kind of your accessory work that has the least neurological load and has the most volume. So um, you kind of tier it down from highest demands to medium demands to low demands. Uh, And another thing you can do on that is you can prioritize it. Let's say this athlete is that 125 pounder that we were talking about and their strength is just down in the gutter right? Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm only going to do one or two sets of power work and then supplement six sets of my strength work, right? If that's Mm -hmm. my goal of the program. So everything is flexible. And that's, I think where like kind of the art of programming comes in and that's where I like to nerd out, but you can fluctuate, you know, maybe you don't even need to do a power workout. Maybe you go straight from your warm up to a heavy trap bar deadlift,
0: you know? Right. There's no problem with that. He- heavy ass weights, a pretty high neural load. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, okay. No, I, I've, I've been actually surpre- funny enough. I just did that. My last athlete before I got here was cool. he's already powerful. He's super yeah. powerful. So we did three sets of his, his B block also for the, by the way, everybody, when I said my, my a block was my warmup, Alex gave me a visible face of disgust. He didn't want to say anything on the podcast, but he looked at me like I was the dumbest person on earth.
1: Yeah, kind of
0: <laughs> but anyways, uh, but so he's super powerful. I his total body power is off the charts. So we did three sets of his power block, and then we went into uh just upper body strength is what we're focusing on. So okay. we did a fuck ton of upper body strength based workout or based exercises. Yeah. I think he I think it was like a, a bench emam. And and then after that, we get into the C portion, or technically for me a D portion um is going to be, that's where I do my endurance splits. If I'm doing concurrent um, or and like a conjugate split, or that's where I get into my metabolic work, or that's even where I get into my patterning work because, or my skill work, because for me, something that's extremely important to me is trying to make my skills as aerobic as possible. If you have the ability to, to make a skill aerobic, that's something that OPEX is huge on um, the training system down here. It's if you have the ability to make an, a skill aerobic, that's going to be your least energy cost available. Yeah. Right. So it's, what yeah, efficiency 101. So it's just making you as efficient as possible. And that's where I add in my density circuits, my density circuits, which is going to be for, for people listening. That's going to be a time-based circuit for multiple exercises added in. I typically have my patterning or my skill work in my density circuit, that's going to make my skill as aerobic as possible. It's going to get as many reps. It's going to make me as efficient as I possibly can be. And adding that in at the end, after all the high neural load is going to make you understand what's going on. It's kind of, I think about it like the same, the same reason why blood flow restriction works. It makes your type or it makes your slow twitch fibers more efficient, but it also activates the fast switch fibers, right? So it activates both. It's the exact same thing for our patterning work. It's almost, I'm cutting off your ability to not be tired when doing a skill. So you're doing it from a little bit of a depleted rate. So you have to work harder at it, but then also it makes you more efficient because we add it into the aerobic state at which you're exercising.
1: And if you think about like mental, um, like tensional demands, I guess, if you will, like yeah, that's the perfect place to be learning skills is like in a aerobic somewhat depleted state because that's not when you're super worn out. You're not dead from that. It's not when your goal is output like in the power block like in the power block it, there's a time and place you have to learn the power movements of course so their skills too but in a power block if i'm you know having an athlete do a split jerk on a landmine i don't necessarily want them thinking about technique yeah. you know i want them to think about <laughs> throwing the motherfucking bar as hard as they can be a fucking athlete so like so and again that goes into this layering idea that i've had like you have to um layer those patterns like the previous block should have had landmine pressing and it should have had this, uh, movement pattern already practiced and rehearsed. that way. If I put it in a power, we can get some power out of it. Right. If like, if I've never done a landmine press and then I say, okay, power block landmine jerk, what the fuck I'm supposed to throw this hard. Are you kidding me? No. So, um, that's another good point as far as layering. I like to maybe add one or two more, um, blocks into my workouts as far as like, uh, primary secondary strength. Mm So we talk about our first block being power, second block being like the compound strength movement. I can get away with, with a lot of athletes, another compound strength block, whether we split it upper body, lower body, or we just have movement patterns layered in there. I like almost two strength blocks. Uh, Maybe that's because I'm a meathead, but also I I like to get big bang for my buck as far as a lot of movement patterns in one workout. Mm -hmm. And then the, uh, the fourth block can be your accessory stuff. Um, your skill base, your density circuit, your um, you know, less demanding, less large muscle groups, but still need attention on work patterning mm-hmm. type of things. And then you get into your conditioning at the end, which um is hard for me uh, because conditioning is also the most time-demanding. Yes. A lot of time good dose conditioning, if you've already gone through kind of your primary hurdles, it usually takes a long time, like especially if you're doing aerobic stuff or you're trying to layer in some uh lactate or Dude, I was about to say the
0: opposite if we're doing a
1: lactic work, cause yeah. you have those big ass yeah, breaks, long ass rest. Yeah. So <laughs> that takes a long time. So that's hard for me to budget at the end of the workout. You know, it's like, yeah. it's like, Oh shit, we got three minutes and we're supposed to do, you know, four aerobic thresholds. Like
0: I know. ride the bike <clears throat> by yourself. Sorry. <laughs> you know, that's why I got out of work 30 minutes late today. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> It's because I had somebody doing uh, uh lactic power work and yeah. I was like, well, fuck this sucks. Yeah. This is not what I accounted for. <laughs> I know, right? And then you get into like
1: you get into a big thing for me is when we're doing aerobic work is like bored athletes, you know? It's like yeah, because yeah, it is boring 100%. It's like it's like I almost wish I could do the workout with them, you know? Like yep. that was feasible with my schedule well, sometimes it is, but um, I want to do the workout with these so we can like at least grind together and struggle there and I'm not sitting here trying to think of off the cuff conversational topics while you're you know borderline pissed off about doing conditioning
0: oh dude i just sit there in silence
1: well like uh think about it work for you i don't know i'm stoic alex
0: i have a i have a stoicism that's
1: what you you say i don't know if that's an accurate (laughs) representation of your character
0: Uh, but um, normally i just talk shit though for real talking shit works so (laughs) well motivate Uh, athletes Uh, it's the best thing for conditioning is when you can when you see them visibly getting bored call them out for the smallest thing and start talking shit
1: (laughs) Yeah, I do that for strength work, too, because um, at least in our a lot of our MMA lifts, like we have some athletes that like did play college football or are or, or strong in themselves. And like, it's almost like they're already there and they don't they don't feel like they need to push it. Like because some right. of our athletes like haven't lifted a whole lot of weights and they're fairly novice in their training age. And it's like, all right, compared to the group, I'm X miles above. But it's like, no, motherfucker, you still need to get stronger. Like, you still right. should be lifting heavy during our strength, like our heavy Force day. So um that's where talking shit works a lot. And that's where I'm thankful that I'm still kind of a young athlete that can mix it up with them.
0: Yeah, that is a little bit threatening. Yeah, well. Wrestle with them a little bit. <laughs> so um, uh, I don't know. That's a g- good general concurrent day.
1: Um, what else did you want to get into? I know you said you had some. Some notes prepared.
0: No, we literally are you not looking at my notes? They're in the building a fighter thing. Why would I be looking at your note? I don't know because it's in a shared drive. Because you literally went all the way through, like in order, the points that I was talking about. I didn't look <laughs> at them once. <laughs> right, now I look at them. It's literally, it went all the way through in order. Good. Good. Um, no, I don't know. I think that's, we just, I think, made programming sound way easier than it actually is (laughs) yeah i mean (laughs)
1: programming is one of those things like the less you know the smarter you are yes if you only have a hammer then everything's a nail and like not to say that simplifying and simple uh simple workouts are bad because i the more i've gotten to know the simpler the workout the better it probably is but having a, a large arsenal of things to work on can help uh, for d- your different situations. Like for this athlete, we need to pull this kind of trick out of my pocket and that'll work really well for them versus like this athlete, this athlete, that trick would not work at all. You know? So, right. Um, so you want to have a large, you know, fat, um, what is it called? Uh, in your bag. bag of tricks, bag of tricks. No, it's a utility belt. You want to have oh, a, yeah. a lot of tools in your utility belt, but not
0: use all of them at once all the time which yeah. I think it's a lot of strength conditioning. That's the whole continuing education field. But anyway. It's kind of like we preach at our athletes to be robust in their physical preparation. So we should also be robust in our knowledge. Yeah. And honestly, that's one of the, one of the
1: biggest um, commonalities that I have with my athletes and we talked about and kind of bond about is it, It's like you're being ambitious as fuck in your career and you want to make it right. I'm being ambitious in my career and I want to make it like, so it's not, it's not like I'm just here. Um, exclusively to support you like i'm here because i want to be the best me that i can be right
0: exactly yeah that's why i like working with high achievers makes me want to continue to want to be a high achiever
1: yeah Uh, one day you'll get to my status don't worry about it Yeah, Um, one of those days one day we'll Um, clean over 300 pounds
0: oh all right everybody Alex got a (laughs) i'm not going to clean i hate cleans can't stand them um well alex just got a virtual reality so we're going to go play virtual reality now um (laughs) Please like share, subscribe, do all the cool stuff that allows us to become friends with your friends. Um, if you are on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating. I just went over there and looked today. We got six Apple Podcast ratings. I think we could boost those numbers up. I appreciate everybody that did it, but I think we can boost those numbers up to at least double digits. And same for Spotify. Uh, if you need any strength and conditioning programs, please hit up buildingafighter.com. Be on the lookout for a redesign coming soon. Um, but for now, we have, I think, six programs set up already, as well as a low back course you can take. If you have a previous history of low back problems, I want to strengthen that up as always, Dr. Austin Shane, Alex Freeman, and we are out.